Oh dear. Welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, where we discuss all things app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I chat with Rahul Pandey, former developer at Pinterest, former developer at Facebook, where he recently quit to found his own startup. We talk about working in big tech, the difference between education and real life in the industry, how to provide value as a developer, why he quit Facebook to start his own company, and much, much more. Now on to the show. So a quick piece of housekeeping before we get into my conversation with Rahul. Firstly, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's donated to the show. It's always nice when someone shows their appreciation by buying me a coffee and I drink a lot of coffee. So if you haven't done yet and you'd like to support the show, you can do so at coffeeencodingpod.com slash coffee. Secondly, I want to say a huge thanks to everyone who's left the show a review over on iTunes or on Spotify. It's greatly appreciated. And again, if you haven't yet done so, do head over to iTunes or Spotify or your podcast app of choice if it allows you to and leave the show a review. It would be much, much appreciated. And then thirdly, this episode is the final episode of the season. I'll be back later on in the year with season three of the Coffee and Coding podcast. So if there's anyone who you'd really like to hear on the show, feel free to drop your guest recommendations to me over on Twitter at LowCarbRob, and I'll try and get as many of them on the show as I possibly can. And now, with all that being said, here is an awesome conversation with Rahul Pandey. So just to give the listeners um, a bit of context, so I'm essentially reading your Twitter bio, but I feel like you did a pretty good job of describing yourself. So you are a former Facebook engineer, you are a former Pinterest engineer, which in itself is like that speaks volumes. Um, you have a YouTube channel with over 29,000 followers, which I definitely want to dig into. And you are a lecturer at Stanford, which is super cool. Yeah. But before we get started, so we're going to get into all that stuff and we're going to get into big tech. But I, I know you posted a YouTube video about this. I think it was today, but I, I think it was today. But I want to ask anyways, and you can give the cliff notes, which is um, why did you decide to leave Facebook? I guess it is an easy, easy opener. Yeah, so um, you're right. I did just publish a video about this uh, yesterday. So, you know, maybe we can drop that into the yeah, description I can or link whatever. It up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to kind of give an overview. So I actually thought about that decision a lot. I mean, obviously, you know, leaving a job, especially a big tech job where, you know, it's very comfortable and cushy, it's a big decision. And so I did definitely have a lot of deliberate thinking that went into it. And I'll give you kind of the Cliff Notes version. There were four different parts to my decision. Number one was... Um, you know, once you've been working for a while, you have this privilege now of you have some amount of wealth or some amount of money. And so one thing I thought about is like, if I work for one or two additional years, will that really change how I live my life? Probably not. I mean, the first year when I graduated from college, it made a huge difference. I was able to buy things. I got a car. But it's like I was on top of the world. But, you know, I've been working now for like eight, almost nine years. It's like, yeah, I mean, it'll be great if I have a little bit more money in the, in the bank, but it's not going to meaningfully change how I approach my life in terms of buying things or going out or things like that. That was a big part of it. Um, the other one was regret minimization, which I think, you know, you probably have heard of, or a lot of people have heard of, which is the idea that you don't want to look back at your life 20 years from now and say, oh, I wish I had done that one thing when I had the opportunity to. And I think a startup is one of those unique things where like, you need to work really hard. You need to put all your energy into it. And I just felt like now I have that ability. I, I, I feel excited by it. And I'm not really sure what my life will look like in 10 or 20 years. I'm, let me just do it right now. And then um, the third one was around failure. So like, here's the other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that 
a lot of these stories about going off and doing your own thing are glorified or like they're made more scary than they actually are. And like, okay, I'm going to risk my whole, my whole uh, career, all my savings. I'm going to go into this one startup. I'm going to, you know, like it's going to work out or I'm going to die. And usually the reality is it's not that the stakes are not that high. Maybe I'm biased because I'm in California and Silicon Valley, but like the often times the outcome, even if you don't, even if you fail completely, the outcome is that, okay, well, you spent two years, you learned a lot and you go out and get another job. And so like that framing of like, hey, the worst case isn't that bad. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to like, you know, be unemployed for the rest of my life. That made, that made me more comfortable. And then the fourth and final reason was just learning. I feel like, you know, this is kind of the cliche answer, but I just feel like, you know, when you're trying to get something off the ground, you learn so much. You talk to so many people, you understand their pain points, you understand what doesn't work, what does work. And I'm excited just to kind of broaden my learning beyond just Android development. That's awesome. And I highly recommend people listening, go and check out that video and I'll link it up. But I wanted to ask, and you can say no, is like, do you, I assume you know what the startup is that you want to work on and can you talk about it? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I, would, I would love to know a bit about what that is. Yeah, I mean, so the YouTube channel actually played a big role in how I thought about what to start, um, which is basically around teaching and mentoring and coaching for technical talent. So when you have an engineer or product manager or anyone related to any kind of technical field at a company, I feel like there's an opportunity today, especially in this world of hybrid or remote work, to be able to, be able to much better uh, you know, help them onboard and more effectively help them get better at their job. Not necessarily through like, we'll teach you Python or we'll teach you like the fundamentals of Android. I'm talking a little bit higher level. Like I want to build a platform or a, a service which helps people get better at leadership at soft skills, things like that, which I think are, you know, often neglected. And especially in today's kind of COVID world or remote world, it's actually hard to learn that uh, because you don't have that much interaction with people, right? And so we're hoping to kind of build something in that space, the, the actual mechanics of it and how it'll work, or we don't exactly know right now. But yeah, that's the broad domain. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I was going to say that that's a highly... Um... That's a highly not, I don't know how to word it. It's not a very well served area is probably a better way to say it. Yeah. Cause e even exactly. just like, yeah, I mean, t t talking to tech people about anything outside of tech is not something that comes up a lot. And that's a huge right. part of working in a tech company. Right. So yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Okay, cool. All right. So I guess I I'll dive into the YouTube stuff from here. Cause that seems like a good segue and then we'll loop back to, to big tech. But you, when, when did you start your channel? Just, just so that the listeners know that. Yeah. The YouTube channel, I think was late 2019. So it's been like a little bit more than two years at this point. Okay, cool. That, that's that's what I got. I just wanted to make sure I got that right. Because so in, in like two years, right, you've grown it to like quite a substantial amount of subscribers. And I've watched some of you, like I've watched a bunch of your videos. I saw the one today. I, I've watched a couple this week. Um, and they're really good, right? And I so I have one question, which is probably not that useful to people listening, but I'm super interested, which is like how difficult. So for example, the one you dropped today, how long and how difficult is it to record a video like that? Because for me personally, like trying to get 10 minutes of footage of me talking to the camera would probably take me like three hours. And yeah. that seems pretty seamless. So like, how, how is that process for you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I'm actually changing my approach to YouTube in a pretty fundamental way. So I think a lot of my earlier content was very utilitarian in the sense that I would make like an Android tutorial. It's like, here's how you build this app or here are the kind of the, you know, different characteristics of this application. And that was like, you know, if you know your stuff, I would put together a rough script and then it'd basically be like a screen recording and me talking over it. And so those were actually, I was able to like churn them out. I mean, I wouldn't say quickly, but like relatively, uh, you know, at a decent clip, the video that 
I'm kind of pivoting into, like the one that I had yesterday about leaving Facebook. Um, those are much more intimate and like much more like I'm talking to the camera. I'm show I'm talking about what I felt or like, you know, how I think about the world. And so there's definitely like a higher level of, um, I don't know, like pressure, I would say of like, I want to make sure that I'm articulating what I say correctly. And it actually has meaning and value for the, for the listener. And so, yeah, it, it took me like at least, I don't know, like five hours just to write the script. And then you know, then I like rehearse the script and I like, I, I, I keep tweaking or modifying it. And the other thing is like, I also like using a new software, a new setup, because I have never really done that kind of video before where I talk to the camera. Um, and so that also took a lot of extra time to set up going forward. I think it'll be a lot faster, but yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is that for that kind of video, which is like much more intimate, it probably took me at least 10, 15 hours end to end. Okay. That's all right. That's good to know. Cause then it makes me feel better about how long it would take me. But then I, <laughs> I guess the quick, I guess the question from there then is, what uh, like two questions right so because i didn't get to this is why did you start the youtube channel and then as like a follow-up is like what do you get out of it because putting 15 hours into youtube to make a 10 minute video that's a lot of effort on your part yeah totally i mean so i think <clears throat> again it's actually a very it, it's your your question is very timely because like my whole approach to youtube is shifting a little bit away from just like i'm going to make programming tutorials and now it's shifting into much more like here's where i am in my career here's what Here's my opinion about the tech industry or whatnot. And so I think that when I started um, back in like November or December of 2019, like two years ago, I think the the main value, there were kind of three things. One was selfish, one was altruistic, and then one was also just like, I want to be able to scratch an itch. So the altruistic one was like, I think that I could, val I could add value to people. Like if I could make a tutorial and they could elevate someone's career or help them in their job, I mean, that's amazing, right? Like it's, uh, of course, a really good thing. The selfish perspective was that I thought that it would help me. It would help me learn. Like you probably know this because you're also a teacher and you're an educator. It's like teaching is the ultimate form of learning, right? And so if you're able to explain something and do it well, like there's really no better way to actually go deep into a topic. And so that was like a really good thing for me. And then the the third aspect was kind of just scratching an itch, which is that I feel like one of the things that, you know, I think we'll talk about this in a little bit is when you work at a big tech company, there is a very regimented way of doing things, right? Like you have this particular framework, this abstraction, you work within that, you deliver features maybe every month, two months, maybe not as quickly as you'd like. And so the final aspect of the YouTube was like, hey, I want to just build stuff and I want to do it in a vanilla Android way and just be able to go quickly. And then I can share that with the world. And so the YouTube channel was almost an excuse for me to be able to build things that I thought were cool. And it's like, let me broadcast that now to the whole world. So that was kind of the initial genesis of the YouTube channel. And I think now it is shifting away from like Android and tactical content. And I think the motivation there was more on like, one motivation was certainly like, how many people are interested in the content? It's like when you're doing a podcast or a tutorial about Android, yeah, of course, there's going to be some people in the world who are interested in Android, but the number of people who are interested in like career growth generally, or like if you're an engineer, how do you advance your career? It's probably 10x or 20x bigger, like way bigger, right? And so I think there is some element of me kind of, I want to cater to an audience which is larger and cares more deeply rather than just like some, you know, widget on Android. And so that's kind of how I'm shifting my, uh, my content now to be much more personal and much more, you know, uh, broader audience. Yeah, I got you. Because you can serve more people. That that totally makes sense. Um, exactly. Okay. So so then so then to get to the big tech point and a big tech part, um, we we can we can jump around a little bit because I think in my head things are going to be a bit jumbled. But because it's like there's so many things I want to ask you. But the the thing that comes to mind when you were just speaking is like how is that process? Get, so you get so for example, right? 
I work for startups, like as a contractor, I work for small startups. So our sprints are like two weeks, right? Two weeks, you deliver a feature, it's out. They don't care what library you use. They don't care. They don't care about a bunch of stuff, right? They just care, does it work? If I use it, does it work? Right, it's gone, right? And I imagine if you work at Facebook or Pinterest, it's a totally different process. So what is like, let's say, you know, I mean, and let's not say, you tell me, how, like how, how does that process work? Uh, like do teams get broken up into features? How long does it take to roll out? Like what are the restrictions or, or not restrictions around it? Like how, how does that whole thing work? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I think that you're right that one of the main differences in big tech or any kind of established tech company versus an upstart is that there's already a lot of inherent value in the code, in the app, in the framework you already have. And so there becomes a kind of a shift in mentality of rather than just like getting something to work and pulling in any random library, the shift becomes how can we make sure that the code we have is robust and it's readable and it's maintainable, right? Because the vast majority of time is going to be spent reading the code and not writing the code, which is might be maybe in contrast to like a startup where it's like just about like let's churn out features and keep adding more and more stuff. And you can rewrite stuff as often as you want in a startup as well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so there's definitely a lot more focus. Which I imagine if, in Facebook, they don't let you do that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think like one of the things that I think was great about Facebook in the early days and, and to some extent still now is they really try and hold on to that vibrancy or that like agility that engineers love. So I think they do, it's like a tension, right? Because you obviously don't want to like go wild and have engineers do anything they want and then things are breaking all the time. But at the same time, you want to have, get, provide engineers some freedom to, you know, scratch their itch and do what they want. So there's like a healthy tension there. And then to your question about like, you know, the team structure and organization, I think it definitely depends. I think usually the way it works is like, it's organized around like, what is the mission? Like Facebook is, is a mega company, right? So you have like literally five or six companies within Facebook. And then within those, you have like particular ownership streams. So like you might say, okay, like this team's objective, like their higher level mission is how can we get people to like, I'm trying to think of a good example, like dating, like Facebook dating is a pretty big thing now. Um, how can we get people to match more, like get more matches on dating? And so then you might have a whole work stream dedicated to that, where you have product managers, designers, Android, iOS, web people, all working on that one mission of how do you increase engagement or your number of matches on this dating app? And then, um, so it, it, rather than it being like, okay, you're the Android team, you're the iOS team, and now you do 20 different things. It's more like, hey, you're the Android team, focus on this particular stream. That's typically what I've seen happen. But I think I'll say it probably depends on the company a lot. Quick interruption. If you're a fan of the show, I'd love it if you could leave it a positive rating review in your podcast app of choice. Contrary to what you might have heard, it doesn't actually help the show be discovered, but it does provide the social proof that it's a show worth listening to. So if you have 30 seconds to spare, I'd really, really appreciate it. And now back to the show. And then just just to loop back a little bit. So you came, you, you, you know, graduate Stanford, like a super prestigious university. Um, and then you end up at Pinterest and then you end up at Facebook and like, you can pick which either one of those you want or something else if I'm missing one. But what was it like for that coming from an educational setting to now I'm building like a real life product and, and there, yeah. you know, I don't want to say there's consequences, but you know, you can't, you can't, you, the stuff that you have to produce has to be good. Right. So, so what yeah. was, what was that like? Yeah, that's a really good call out. I feel like there's a really big difference um, between, you know, academic computer science and then what you actually do when you're out in industry. And I think like for me, the big challenge was how do you work on a team? Because like, you know, when you're going through school, you have like a problem set or you have, you know, an exam. And most of the time you're working, you know, on your own or the burden is on you to like figure things out. But then when you shift into industry, all of a sudden it becomes much more team oriented. It's like you're working with the API engineer or like the backend engineer to make sure that 
what you're writing on the client, the Android code is going to be able to cooperate and like talk fluidly with the API. So it's like much more like you're going to succeed together or fail together. And there's also a lot more in terms of like tactical things like version control. Like I had like my depth of understanding of Git or Mercurial or whatever other version control was very, very limited. And then only when I got to industry and stuff, like there's like my coworker here is like working on a experimental feature that I don't need to pull in and I want to build on top of that. I want to merge that back into the main line at some point. Like that was like totally not there for me. So that was a big learning curve. Um, and I think, yeah, the other thing is like the maintain the maintainability aspect, right? Like, you know, at Stanford, we had the quarter system. And so like every three months you'd work on a project. And then once you finish it, for the most part, you throw it away. Like there's really no reason to like revisit it, right? Um, but that's the exact opposite at Pinterest or Facebook. It's like, you're going to work on it. Now it's in the code base. You're going to have to think about it and look at it every day when you look at that file or at that module, right? And so there's like a really big difference in terms of like the quality bar of what you're shipping is certainly higher. That that totally makes sense to me. And then I, I think, so there's, I see this as a, as a freelancer and as a contractor, right? Which is developers generally think that because I'm a freelancer or a contractor, I'm at some bar that's higher than them, which is not true, right? We're all just developers and we're either good or we're not good or we're learning or whatever, right? And it's not like this magical position, like you have to be a guru to do this thing. But I also feel like in terms of big tech, people will look at Facebook and be like, I need to know everything before I could even go for an interview at Facebook because the people that work there are geniuses. So there's kind of two sides to the coin, which is like, I know that you worked with super talented people, but I guess the question is, do you like does does Facebook or Pinterest or a big tech company, for example, have you know junior and mid level and senior engineers? So yeah, in terms of like the the caliber of engineers, I mean, I guess the question is everybody a genius or, or is there room to grow there? I mean, I think definitely not everyone's a genius. Like not everyone is like the god of programming. I don't view myself certainly as like a god of programming because I mean I'm like one very concrete counterexample to that. I think that I, I really hope that people don't have the perception that like you need to be an ultra smart person to get into Facebook or Google. Like, I think that everyone is empowered and if they work hard enough and they, there's some amount of luck to be frank. Like if you network, you get lucky and you work hard. I really think that pretty much anyone can go into a company like Facebook or Google and succeed. I think that um, there is certainly a class of people who are just like phenomenal, like people who I worked with at Facebook um, like not only are they good Android developers, like they're good enough that they're going to go into the OS and like understand it, even like put in a request to like merge in something to the core OS. Like they're going to go in and learn some framework really quickly. Uh, like pull that in. Like they're just like phenomenal at like getting things to work. And so like, of course there's opportunity there. But I think the, the other thing I wanted to call out is that that's not the only way you add value as an engineer. I feel like a lot of other engineers who are really talented and they do really well at a company like, like Microsoft, Google, or Facebook is that they're able to get alignment and communicate and unblock other people. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean need to come from like your uh, coding beast. It could just be, Hey, like I'm really effective at summarizing a meeting and able to like build alignment between the product manager and the designer or whatever. And so I think a lot of my value, for example, is not just because I'm like really able to code a lot, I think, I hope that a lot of my value is actually able to come from like being able to collaborate effectively. So I think a lot of that stuff, I mean, there's certain, like there's like a minimum bar, I would say for like, yeah, you obviously need some technical skill in order to be effective as an engineer. But I think once you cross that minimum bar, I feel like a lot of the value is up to you to decide how you want to impact your team and grow yourself and your team. 
Yeah, okay. I, I really like that because I, I think a lot of people don't think outside the technical as well. They're like, I need to have all these technical skills to be useful. Yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm actually really curious, like on your end, because like, you know, I have never not done too much in the freelancing world. I've done some consulting, but like, it's kind of interesting because like, I kind of have the opposite. Whereas I feel like as a freelancer, you're like being hired for a very specific thing. And so therefore, like my sense is that, you know, your communication ability or your like, um, ability to get consensus may not be valued as highly as, hey, can Rob, are you able to get the job done? So I'm curious how you think about that. Like, do you feel like there's kind of more pressure as a freelancer to like really deliver? I think, I think it depends. Uh, to your point, it depends what you're brought in for, right? So for example, like I'm on a project right now where I got brought in to a startup to essentially just reskin their whole app and they want to add some features and that. And the runway to do that is say six months. So from the start, you're not under pressure, like we need this thing built next week and you get input into the design. And so you get to bring your experience and say like, I don't think this is a good idea. I think you should do this. Um, so the pressure aspect is not there. I definitely think for a project like this, though, you need to have good communication skills um, because because uh, you can go into a project where it literally is like, here's everything we want you to do. You know, just let us know when it's done. And that's it. You don't you don't get you don't if you think it's a bad idea, you're still going to do it. And if you're an engineer that has no communication skills, you can do that. But as soon as it comes to like you're in a meeting, hey, Rob, what do you think? Um, it's like, what do you think about this? And you have no input or they like the previous developers who made this app. They obviously just the, the startup would come to them and say, you know, we want this thing to be bright pink and we want it to spin. And they would just do it. They wouldn't say, why do you want to do that? We don't think it's a good idea. Um, nothing on Android looks like this. This is an iOS thing. They didn't do it. So, so I think there's there's part of it. Um, but I think mostly from the technical aspect, like there's there's nothing special about being a freelancer or a contractor. Like you need you need it's to your point, right? You need to have a decent level of understanding. You can't go into a contract role and they say, you know, can you build this and you it's going to take you six months and it's going to take another engineer two weeks. Like that's not cool because that that's, that's, you're in the wrong role. But once you get past that bar of, you know, you're able, like if you're qualified, I always say it's if you're qualified to get through the interview, you're qualified to do the gig. Mm. And then the soft skills and that and stuff like that, depending on the interview process, they either weed you out because you don't have communication skills or they find out in the process of you working that, that you didn't. Um, I don't know if that answers your question or if I just went on a little ramble there, but I think, yeah, you're totally right that I think communication is equally important and maybe even more important in your case, because you're like trying to represent yourself and like provide guidance. I think the one thing that, um, does stand out to me is that one of the things I really value about big tech is that you're almost there to learn, like you get paid to learn, like you're on the job and you have this mentorship and support structure around you. And that's what I think scares me a little bit about freelance right because i don't think they're gonna be okay with you saying let me take three months and bill you for the time it takes me to learn this framework and then let me do the change right yeah i mean i mean i would say some companies you would be surprised which i think is crazy because they like i had one gig where they wanted me to help coach up the agency that they were using to build their products it's not even their agency right it's not their employees i'd be coaching another company on how to do something well to do it for them but then they'd also it didn't that didn't make any sense but um yeah i don't like I, I think once you get to a certain level and i would say like once you're at you i mean if you're at your level like you could get any contract you want and i i would be very surprised if you went into any role in terms of contracting and you was like i need three months to figure this out like mm. i'm pretty sure you turn up and they'd say you've got three months to do this thing and you deliver it in two weeks and then you have two and a half months to do whatever you want and get paid like, I, I think that I think that's a big misconception is like, to your point, like with Facebook, they pay you to learn. And to this, you know, you can't go in and say, you know, 
I, I need three months to go and figure this out. But at the same time, you work with other engineers, right? So I'll be on a project and there might be someone senior. But then to your point that you made earlier, it's not like school. So if I don't know how to do something, I could speak to the iOS guy and be like, how did you do this? And he will give me like the cliff notes of iOS. And then I'll be able to figure out and be like, Great, I could do something similar and yeah. vice versa. So, you know, there, there's definitely room to learn things. And I think once you're, once you're, I keep saying at a certain level, but I feel like if, if you consider yourself a mid-level engineer, then you can do it and there's not going to be any surprises. Yeah, I feel like it's interesting because I feel like what what this conversation shows me is that what you don't do always feels scarier. Like for me, I've been only in this like corporate environment and like going out and advocating and trying to get a bid on a freelance project, that seems scary to me. But I think at the same time, there's a lot of people out there who are like, you know, being able to work at Facebook or Pinterest or whatever is so challenging. And like for me, it's like, no, that's not that hard. I mean, I'm sure you could do it too. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, we're coming at it from a different perspective. I definitely think it's a perspective because I've been freelancing in Android for like 10 years now. And yeah. if you said to me, like, Rob, you've got a job at Facebook and you start tomorrow, like I would be like that. I, I'm not supposed to be at Facebook. Like I don't know enough stuff to be at Facebook. Right. I don't know what I'm doing. Like So I, I definitely think it's, it's a perspective because I always feel like that about freelancing. When I work with, um, you know, I'm in a company, they have employees and they're really good. I'm like, why do you guys just work here? Why do you not work, you know, everywhere? Why are you not contracting? And they think that they're not at the level ready to be contracting. And and you can't explain to them, like, there isn't this, there is not this magical level. You just do it. And after day two, you realize, oh, actually, no, it's fine. I can do it. So, yeah, I definitely think it's a perspective thing. We'll get right back to the show. But first, I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying this episode, if you feel it's bringing you value, then it would mean a lot to me if you shared it with a friend or fellow developer. That's it. Just hit the share button in your podcast app of choice and you know what to do. Now, back to the show. For people that are listening, you know, I keep saying, you know, you have to be at a bar, you have to be at a bar. So let's see, let's say somebody's, you know, they've watched all your tutorials and they know how to build all of that stuff. What is it that they need to know, either technical or not, on top? Or what do they need to do on top of that to be able to kind of, you know, be considered for a big tech job, let's say? Yeah. So I think that's also a really interesting and kind of controversial question because I feel like what you need to get into the role and what you need to succeed on the role are two different things. Yeah, sure. And I mean, you probably know this too, right? Like when you interview, you're being asked about like, you know, binary search trees and stacks and queues and like all these data structures that um, you often will never use on the job. And so I think to answer your question in terms of like, what do you need to get in? It's just like, you need to go through leak code and cracking the coding interview and like, grind through a lot of that in order to be able to succeed on the interview. And then when you're on the job, I think a lot of it is going to be understanding the tooling of the team that you're working on. Because like one of the things that happens is that when you're working on a big company, you're not going to be using the vanilla, you know, like Android tools and vanilla Android. Like when I first started at Facebook, actually, we didn't even use Android Studio. We used IntelliJ. And like they had a bunch of different plugins that made it, you know, because like the code base is so large that you needed to have like extra plugins to make it actually function. Um, and so like you have to be able to understand like what is what am I actually trying to achieve? And this tool is not the tool that I'm used to outside of the bubble of big tech, but it still does the same thing. So like let me understand how that works. So I feel like a lot of that is like quickly ramping up on the nuances of the tools, the framework, the language in order to succeed once you're on the job. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And like, um, very short story. I I interviewed at Facebook. I think like in 2013. Um, I got a random email and they were like, "Would you like to interview at Facebook?" And I was like, "Sure." And then I did. I, I remember I did the first tech part, and I think there was three. And I did the first one, and it was what you said. You know, they asked me some crazy comp sci questions, 
and yeah. I didn't know what I was doing and I thought I did terribly. <laughs> and then I got an email the next day saying like, yeah, you did good. We want to get you back. And I didn't go oh. back because I was like, I thought I did terribly at that part. I'm not going to go for the second one. Um, but my, my question for that was like, you, you're looking at starting a startup at some point you might be looking to hire engineers. So what would your interview process look like? Like, have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I, I've definitely thought about that. I think that the reason that pe- these big companies use, um, data structure as an algorithm, like DSA is because it kind of, um, it allows you to calibrate engineering talent at scale. So like when you get to Facebook level, you have like literally hundreds or maybe thousands of people who are doing conducting interviews on the company's behalf. And so if you want a kind of easy way to compare across, then you need to have a standardized mechanism to assess, which is where DSA actually is quite valuable, right? Because it doesn't really assume, you know, anything about a particular language or a particular, um, you know, technology. And so I think it works for big tech, but I think as I build up the startup and I'm doing hiring, I think that's probably not the way you should do it. I think a much better way is like, I'm probably going to hire one or two people, right? Not like a thousand people like Facebook does. And so if you're only hiring one or two people, I think a much better way to evaluate candidates is to actually give them something representative of what they'll do on the job. Because like, you know, I'll have a fairly good idea of like, here's what technology we use. Here's like how we operate. Here's like the the code structure. What would you do next? Like I would ask, you know, like, how would you actually go about addressing this problem or tackling this issue? And that would be kind of, I think, a much better way of figuring out if there's a fit compared to like some random binary tree problem. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I'm definitely a fan of, um, I mean, I like tech tests. I mostly like the ones where they just like watch you do something and it's not necessarily um, about a language because then yeah. you get to see how people think. And at the end of the day, if, if they, they might not know the answer, but if they think about it in a way that gets them there in the end, then I feel like it's okay. So I, I guess we can jump into languages quickly, right? So you said, you know, it was is your it was your most... Um, what was the word you used? Not successful tweet. That doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, it was like by far, like somehow it got picked up and it has like, I don't know, like 100, Viral. 200 retweets yeah, yeah, yeah. and like so gotcha, many likes. Gotcha. So I feel like a lot of my audience came from that one tweet. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. All right, so see, I, I hardly ever use Twitter. So I saw that and I and I read it and I thought it was great. But I thought that was like recent because I didn't realize it must be like a pinned tweet or something like that. I had no idea. So so I guess just, just like Cliff Notes on that, people can go check it out. I'll link to it. But in terms of learning languages, right? So you said you've had the opportunity to learn a bunch of programming languages. Um, and how, like, I guess the question is, how do you go about it? And also, is it worth learning things outside of your your role, right? So if you're an Android developer, you only need to know Java, Kotlin, you're set. But is it worth somebody then also, you know, let's go and learn Python or let's go and learn, I don't know, Kotlin on the back end or something like that? Like, like how do you approach it? And how do you feel like, is it valuable to people if it's outside their role? Yeah, so I think that the context of that tweet was that I was actually able to land code in six different languages at Facebook. And that's actually one of the really nice things about um, like Facebook or other companies is that, you know, I think that you have the opportunity not only to be an expert in Android, which is what I was doing, but also you can contribute to other code bases or other frameworks. And so like there's an internal tool that I built and that was why I ended up actually using Python, JavaScript, C, and the other languages because I had the initiative to say, I want to learn that even though it's not really in my JD, in my job description. So I think that if you're able to like make an argument for being able to have impact on your company by doing something a little bit outside of the narrow job description you have, I think that's a hundred percent a really worthwhile use of time. Because I think oftentimes the best programmers are not those who like they're just an inner developer, but they know enough about other languages or other frameworks. They can be dangerous and they can like quickly hook something up and like, you know, 
put a dashboard together or like do something which like a pure Android developer probably couldn't do. That's where you really are able to unlock a lot of value. So I think that for sure it's it's a really good investment of time if you have the capacity to. Um, and, and I have some, the, the the tweet was basically a way I recommend people to quickly learn a new language. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I really like that phrase that they can be dangerous because that's exactly how I would describe it. So yeah. Awesome. All right. Cool. So. You, you talked about imposter syndrome. I've seen, I think you, did you do a talk on this or was it a tweet? I saw something about imposter syndrome. Yeah. So it was, um, that was well, a, talk, a quick story right? on that. Like, it, it was a talk and a tweet. So basically okay, what I cool. do is whenever I do a talk, like there's a co- organization called Code Mentor, which is really cool that I gave a talk about imposter syndrome. And then once the talk came out, I turned it into a tweet thread. So that's like one tip. I don't know, like if for people listening or even for you, Rob, like one thing I really like doing is repurposing content. So like when you do a talk, that talk has value, hopefully. And so if you can just package up that content as a tweet or as like a, uh, a LinkedIn post or like some sort of image or infographic, like you're getting a lot more mileage out of that content. That's like, I typically try and do that. I was going to say, I've heard people do it for posts, but I think a tweet is a really unique way to do it because that would totally work as well. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And, and then my question about imposter syndrome, I guess the thing, I guess the question was going to be having been like, you know, when I describe your credentials, I would find it very hard to believe that you have imposter syndrome. But I guess my question would be, you know, going into like a new startup, right? Is does is there any of that with with this like new, you know, unknown kind of venture? Yeah, I think I definitely have imposter syndrome. I've had it my whole career, and I think I'll continue to have it. I think like the way I think about it is that imposter syndrome is not necessarily a bad thing. I think um, if you if you're in over your head and you feel uncomfortable, in some ways that's a good thing. Like that's where the maximum amount of learning will happen. And I think when you start to flip your mindset to saying like, I feel like an imposter, I feel very uncomfortable, I'm not going to function well. If you instead flip your mindset to saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable right now, that's an opportunity for me to grow. That's an opportunity for me to learn. I think that's a much more healthy way of approaching a promotion or a new job, or like in my case, a startup, right? I have no idea, aside from the engineering, I have no idea how to do sales or marketing or all these other things that will have to go into the startup, right? And so of course, there's definitely some amount of imposter syndrome, like I have no idea what I'm doing. But I think that if you have the phrasing, like the framing that I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna be uncomfortable and learn at the same time, and I'm gonna have confidence in myself, I think that's really how you get, get past it. Okay, that's awesome, that's awesome. All right, so final question. Um, what do you think separates a great developer from an okay developer? I think a lot of it is mindset. So I think when I look at some of the best coworkers I had at Facebook, they don't think that anything is a heavy lift. And what I mean by that is nothing to them feels like a lot of work. Like for me, when I started at Facebook, like um, like the most recent team I was on, it was like a cross-platform team. And so like you would have to work on the Android code base, iOS code base, and there's also some like server-side component to it as well. And so for them, like this person came in with like an iOS background. And he like obviously he knew how to do the Android stuff, but then like he there was a bug or some issue on the Android side. He's like, oh yeah, let me quickly spin up an Android emulator. Let me learn how to check out the Android code base. Let me like figure out how to put log statements into like understand where it is. And like within a couple hours, he was able to actually fix a bug on the android side and he also had like the server side code running like i was like kind of amazed that this is a person who just because of their mentality they're like okay that's not a big deal like let me quickly check out the android code base let me dive into kotlin learn as much as i can as quickly as i can and just get it done right and i feel like for like at least initially my mindset was like, okay well you're telling me to learn ios give me a month i'll you know read a book 
I'll like understand the fundamentals and I'll get back to you. But this person was like, no, I'll do it tomorrow. I'm going to get it done. And I feel like a lot of the best developers I've worked with are like, they have that attitude of like, nothing's going to stop me. I'll like go through a wall. I'll get what I need to. I'll pick it up. I'll, I'll deliver the value that I need. So I think that's kind of what, it's not so much about technical skill. It's just more like this attitude of I can get it done and I'll do yeah. it quickly. I, I really like the answer. And I also have worked with a backend developer who was like that which I think also was crazy because if I have an issue with the back end, I don't spin up a server and try and fix it. I'll be like, Hey, I sent this thing. Can you, can you tell me, yeah, can, yeah, you exactly. debug that? can you pay with me for two hours to figure this out? So yeah, no, that's awesome. Okay, cool. All right. So, um, then final, final question, um, where can people find you online? Where can they find you on YouTube? All that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, so I am R Pandey one, two, three, four, pretty much everywhere. Um, so R my last name, one, two, three, four. Um, I think I'm most active, I think on YouTube and Twitter. So if you just search up Rahul Pandey on YouTube, I should come up and then Twitter, rpandey1234. I'd love to connect with anyone watching. So that's a wrap from me. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask? No, I think this is great. I mean, I think I, I've seen a couple of your previous podcasts. I think that, um, yeah, I mean, the main thing I would say is that everyone has some value to offer to the world. And I feel like, you know, being able to talk to people like you or just like, you know, putting out your ideas, whether that's in the form of a tweet, of a YouTube video or a podcast, I think like the more people that do that in the world, I think the better off we'll all be. So that's like my one, my one message, I would say. Huge thanks to today's guest, Rahul Pandey. Make sure you check him out on social and make sure you check out his YouTube channel. All of the links are in the show notes. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or fellow developer. And if you really want to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash donate. And if you don't want to miss future episodes of the show, make sure you follow or subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast. <laughs>